Do you have concerns about your family member's safety during emergencies at home, in the community, or even during a natural disaster? What steps can you take now to prepare? We've got great tips and advice in today's podcast episode for families enrolled in EFMP. I'm Jen Wong, and today we're talking about safety and emergency considerations. Hi, and welcome to the EFMP and Me podcast brought to you by the Office of Special Needs and Military OneSource. I'm Jen Wong, Program Analyst with the Office of Special Needs and your host for today's episode. This podcast series highlights a variety of topics that can be further explored by visiting EFMP and Me on Military OneSource. EFMP and Me is a digital tool that provides valuable, exceptional family member program-related topics, resources, and checklists to service members, families, providers, and leaders 24-7. Today, we're going to talk about a very important topic, keeping your family and your family member with special needs safe at home and in the community in the typical day-to-day and prepared for any unforeseen emergencies. And to help us, our guest is Scott Campbell. Scott, I'm so pleased to be chatting with you today. Could you please share a little about yourself and maybe a little bit about how you got involved and became an expert in the safety and emergency considerations? Jen, sure. Thanks very much for the introduction. Uh, I was uh, was in the Army for 31 years, and I'm on the the boards of two of the local largest nonprofits in Northern Virginia when it comes to autism. And as part of those organizations, I've done over 400 safety talks, uh, about a third of those for local law enforcement. Uh, How I got into that was I have a 23-year-old son with significant autism. Uh, He's nonverbal and has a few minor behavioral challenges. And uh, my concern that uh, he would someday, almost the inevitability that he would be involved in some sort of law enforcement situation, which turns out, yep, we've already had three contacts with law enforcement. And uh, both my concerns and also uh, some friends of ours who have a son about the same age with also who's a kind of a Houdini and getting out of the house. Uh, He is, uh, they've got a mechanical lock on every door and window an audible alarm in every door and a six foot eye fence all around their house. Wow. And he regularly, in spite of all of that, is still able to get off the property. Uh, so those concerns and uh, initially one of the local law enforcement agencies contacted me and said, hey, we have this new thing called Project Lifesaver, which I think we'll talk about later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can find folks with autism, but once we find them, we don't know what to do with them. So my very first presentation way back in 2005 was, a, okay, once you find them, this is what you do with them. Wow. Wow. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Scott. It it sounds like your personal experience and professional experience are are going to lead to some great ideas and tips for our listeners today. And so hearing your background, Scott, I know you'll be speaking from your experience, not only as a subject matter expert, but as a parent too, right? So it sounds like we, we may hear you refer to stories or situations related to your son who has autism. And I just want to remind our listeners that the tips, the tools, and the resources we discuss in today's episode are applicable to a variety of special needs, ages, and particular concerns. And also, each family is unique with different needs and different things that work for them. So what we talk about today may be suggested considerations, but only you can decide what really works for your family. And I also want to recognize that what we discuss today 
maybe a hard topic to cover. No one wants to think about their family in an unsettling or an unsafe situation. So if these topics are difficult to hear at this time, that's perfectly okay. You can exit the audio, go directly to the list of resources posted with this podcast. And if you'd like to talk with someone right now, non-clinical counselors are available through Military OneSource 24-7. So Scott, there's a lot of great information to discuss. I want to make sure we cover safety in the home and the community, as well as emergency preparedness. So let's jump right in. What are some everyday things that you can do to keep your child safe in your community? Well, as the parent of a, an adult with autism, I've learned quickly how important it is to be proactive. And the, mm-hmm. the first thing, of course, is disclose, disclose, disclose. Okay. Uh, you're you're going to need help statistically. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need to get your neighbors involved, uh, your community involved, and work proactively. Uh, have a get-to-know-your-kid barbecue party mm-hmm. with your neighbors. We did that when we first moved to where we live now. Uh, know they're approachable. Give them your phone number. Um, so rather than calling 911, they can call you. Mm-hmm. Uh, show them your child's ID bracelet or any other uh, in- ID information that they have. You know, when you're out on the road, display some sort of autism awareness or notification items, magnets or license plates or stickers. There's a whole lot of those out there. Mm-hmm. Talk to your neighborhood watch program and also uh, visit your local police and fire department with your individual with a special needs. So the first responders get to know them and they get to know your child. That makes sense. And I know when we talk about safety, I can see how knowing your surroundings, your neighbors and, and them knowing you can really be beneficial. But I'm curious, Scott, what do you think about disclosing to the people around you you don't know. So for example, um, sometimes I see kids at the mall with their parents and they may have a, an identifying t-shirt that says autism or something like that on it. Well, it kind of depends on the child. I mean, in the world of autism, if they're on the higher functioning end of the spectrum, it's probably not really needed on the lower functioning end of the spectrum. And if they're a runner or an eloper, mm-hmm. or uh, if in particular, if they're nonverbal, uh, you need to think a little more about disclosure, but you have to do it judiciously. You know, don't don't overthink it. You know, with my kiddo uh, who who does a runner, you know, these sort of things happen. Uh, you're seven times more likely to have interaction with law enforcement if you have autism. So it, it's again, you have to proactively plan for that near certainty. Great. I think that's it's a very important topic to think about, and it's definitely you know, the parent's decision about when and who they wanted to disclose to, but what works for one family may not work for the next. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking of one time where with this particular family in this certain circumstance, I saw disclosure work. And um, if I could just tell this quick story, when my friends and I were at the park, a woman sat at a picnic table near us. She introduced herself and she said, hey, do you see that cute kid over there in the yellow shirt? That's my son. Uh, he's deaf. So if he's doing something unsafe, he won't hear you call out to him. And so, you know, what our response was to her was, oh, that's okay. We'll watch out for him. She never asked us to watch out for him. Uh, She was just disclosing that her child wouldn't hear us in an emergency. But suddenly, she had about five or six other adults watching out for her child, um, all from this disclosure. Well, and and that's my you know, one of the things with my son is we never know what he's going to do. I mean, he 
Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things in his world is every French fry ever made is, is made for him. <laughs> uh, and he will, and if he sees a French fry anywhere to him, that's my French fry. And even if we're leaving any of those fine dining establishments, Wendy's, Burger King's, McDonald's, <laughs> and he's full, he's eaten. And as we're walking out, we got to be really, really careful because he will snag a fry out of off of somebody's tray. He's done it oh so many times, and it you use it as a again for a chance for disclosure, a chance for education. You know, I, mm -hmm. I apologize, saying I'm sorry. He has significant autism. He's on a restricted diet. One of the few things he's allowed to have is potato products. You know, I'll be happy to buy you a new pack of fries. You know, he's now 23. I've never had to do that uh, because mm -hmm. the user reaction, once you explain it is, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. You know, if he likes them so much, he can have my fries. As in your kid Aww. just stuck his hand in my fries. I don't want them anymore. <laughs> but, but if they give them to us and they often do, we can't give him those fries because they're, then we're reinforcing that behavior. So oh, then we're, we have to throw away in what's in his mind, his fries. <laughs> so then we got to get him to the car pretty quickly because then we're liable to have a little meltdown mm -hmm. because we just threw away what in his mind is his fries. Mm. That's another great example of disclosure. And I bet a lot of parents may already be practicing that method um, because it's really just open and honest conversation. You're, you're telling the other person, hey, it happened. This is it. This is the situation, you know. Let's move on. Um, but a great tip for keeping your community informed. What else would you recommend you can do to prepare when it comes to safety? So one of the things to do is provide a pre-notification system into the local 911 system. There's different ways of doing that. Uh, some localities have what they call a smart 911 pre-notification system, or which is done online. Some places have their own unique system, uh, including my locality of Fairfax County, Virginia. Get on your computer, put the data in, into it for your child, for your loved one, regardless of age. And there's also what we call 911 flag sheets. They're called different things in different places where you fill out a piece of paper and physically provide that to your local law enforcement agency. The key thing, whether it's done online or it's done uh, using a, a piece of paper, is to make sure that in spite of just doing the notification, that your local 911 system has put something in the computer about your home, You know mm -hmm. that your home is known as a location of interest, that they put some data into the computer to say, okay, somebody with autism or whatever the disability is, you know, if you have an elderly family member with you, you know, someone has adults with a, a dementia or Alzheimer's. But again, you want to know your you want your home known as a location of interest so that, you know, when something happens and they bring your address up on the computer, they have a clue as to what's going on with that particular address. You know, way back when, uh, like 15 years ago with our child, I went into the local police station, gave them a copy of the 911 flag sheet because that's all that was available at the time. Mm -hmm. Talked to the person behind the, the screen at the, the window there. Turns out she had a special needs child herself. So we had, you know, some you know, conversation. I watched her put some data into the system and basically it just said, you know, child with autism at residence, do not approach house with sirens on because my, mm -hmm. my son has no hearing sensitivities. 
And then later on, I uh, talked to the lieutenant who was in charge of the shift that, that particular day and discussed what I was doing. Found out I was doing classes on autism awareness and safety. I went out and ultimately did a training with every shift at that local police station. And at the end of one of the days, one of the training sessions, one of the officers came up to me and said, hey, yeah, I know all about your son. Oh, wow. And like, like, wow, how do you know about my son? Well, as it turns out, he was the officer assigned to our neighborhood. Wow. And he had a copy of the 911 flag sheet for my son in the book that he carried with him every single day. Wow. And when he was taking his daily power ring break, that's what they call donuts sometimes. Um, he, he read that and I quizzed him on it. And he really did off that two sheet piece of paper, really did know as much as there, there was to know about my kiddo. And for someone who has a child with very significant disabilities, I mean, that's, that's as best as you can get. Wow. Uh, and that's where you hope your law enforcement would be. I'm, I'm sure by now he's moved on to a new, new duty station, but um, you know, that's the nirvana when it comes to getting data into your 911 system and having your local law enforcement and, and firefighters and EMTs aware of what's going on at your house before they ever get to your house. I bet. I bet. This information, you know, if families didn't already know it, this sounds so important doing that pre-notification to the 911 system, doing that flag sheet. So that way the the local emergency personnel can get to know your family member. And like you mentioned, Scott, you know, whether it's a family member with autism, uh, difficulty understanding, who may panic in an emergency or have a hearing or vision or communication impairment or a mobility concern. You know, I could see a lot of different families taking advantage of, you know, this support that's put in place. So, Scott, what sort of information do you recommend putting on one of these flag sheets? Well, there's, it's a, the one we, we hand out, it's a, it's a word file. You fill out, you know, however it applies for your child, regardless of what the disability is. Okay. Uh, and it's not just for children with special needs. It mm-hmm. could be used for adults with Alzheimer's or any sort of impairment, you know, deaf, hard of hearing, mm-hmm. uh, low vision, any sort of thing. But some of the things that you could put on the, the on the flag sheet is obviously a current photo of the, the child, physical description, height, weight, eye, hair color, any other ID marks mm-hmm. in the world of autism where there's usually sensory issues. You know, you want to talk about those and what they are and how to counteract them if possible, any medical dietary issues. If they're inclined to run off, where they might go, mm-hmm. you know, any compulsive behaviors they may have for my son is hand flapping mm-hmm. again where they might run off to their likes dislikes how do they communicate and if they typically wear any particular identification bracelets necklets or if they carry an id card uh, in the world of autism water is a huge issue uh, for individuals that run off and unfortunately die about 90% of them die by drowning. So it's good to know where all the local water sources are and they need to be searched first. Mm-hmm. Uh, another concern is fire. Unfortunately, many individuals with autism tend not to leave a burning building. They recognize that fire is a problem, but maybe not a problem to them. So one of the th- other things to put on the flag sheet is where's the location of the bedroom of the individual? Because typically in a fire, they will run and hide 
um, in the closet or behind furniture and not leave the building. So firefighters need to know where's the person typically going to go so they can rescue them if they have to out of that particular location. And obviously contact information for mm-hmm. parents, guardians, whoever it may be, emergency contact information. And this sort of thing can be shared and should be shared with uh, the teachers, again, your local fire department, police department. Uh, if you have a, a particularly you know helpful neighbor, give them a copy. With the school resource officers to school, give them a copy, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That all makes a lot of sense. Are there any other forms or documents um, that can be filled out with the local emergency personnel? Well, many sheriff's departments have a, a missing child packet that they will put together. And usually these are at uh, kind of like their open house sort of events, or you can just go to the local sheriff's department and uh, fill one out. Typically, again, it's a photo. They may take fingerprints, which for some with autism can be a little difficult. <laughs> uh, you know, again, they take physical description. And in some locations, you actually take a DNA sample. Now, nothing's done with these kits. They simply get them, they store them. And then if you call them and say, hey, my child's missing, and then they pull the kit out, look at the information, then use that, dispatch that information to all the law enforcement that are involved so they have an easier time looking for those individuals. Okay. Okay. And like I mentioned earlier, this can be a hard conversation to have. No one wants to think about their loved one in an unsafe situation, but being prepared is very essential. One thing, if I could just add, you mentioned earlier about having a current photo and I'd even add to make sure it's an accurate current photo. I feel like nowadays in the land of digital photos, it's there's so many apps and filters you have to take into consideration. Is that photo still an accurate portrayal of that person? Is it recent? Is it accurate? You know, does it does it show those identifying characteristics of that person? Um, so, Scott, would you be willing to share the story about how excited your son gets about a long blade of grass? My son, I mean, amongst other things, his self-stimulatory behavior is um, spinning string or long blades of grass. Mm-hmm. And when he was about six, we were uh, down in Yorktown, Virginia, and just walking along the road. I'm between him and the road with my hand on his shoulder because, again, we never know where he's going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's between him and the James River, again, given the drowning it's, you know, situations. You know, that's why that's key. And he likes to change what he stems with, what he, he waves around in his hands. Mm-hmm. And without any notification, he just started, he got out from underneath my hand and started running across the street. And I yelled his name because if I don't yell his name, he doesn't know I'm talking to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously very, he loudly screamed stop. Mm-hmm. Now he's a really compliant individual and he immediately stopped. And that was good. But because the SUV that almost hit him was about three inches away from his nose. Oh, wow. The toe of his shoe was actually touching the tire of the car. Wow. I pulled him back onto the sidewalk. He was very mad, not because he almost got run over in front of his parents, but because he couldn't get that long blade of grass on the other side of the street. Mm-hmm. So, again, you just never know how it's going to go. Absolutely. So, in scenarios like that where you may have a family member who is a runner um, or a lopes, uh, tends to run off. Do you have any recommendations of resources that are out there? Well, one of the uh, the primary ones I tell folks about is the Project Lifesaver program, which okay. is typically run by the local sheriff's department, but not always. It's a radio technology system 
and looks like a big watch and usually okay. is put on an individual's wrist. They have an assortment of bands that they use due to sensory issues. And it's on the individual 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. It's fairly water resistant. And it's a chance for if the person does run off and lope, mm-hmm. they notify local law enforcement. They show up with you know tracking systems and how many they have depends on the locality. And they just dial in the radio frequency for that particular, you know, tracking band that's on on the individual. And typically within 30 minutes, they're able to find them. Um, Sometimes in five or 10 minutes. This was originally begun with adults with Alzheimer's. And then they started handling folks, uh, kids with special needs too, of, of any age. And since 1999, they've found over 3,800 individuals using the system all around the country. Wow. Now, part of the issue is uh, it's not everywhere. Okay. Your local law enforcement has to buy into the system. Sometimes they get grants to be able to do that. So if it's not available, you know, there's a number of other GPS systems that can be bought by the family. But I would go with Project Lifesaver first if you if it is available. Number one, it causes the local law enforcement and you and your loved one to, you know, meet each other mm-hmm. because the battery on the device has to be changed every month or two, depending on which battery they use. So they typically come to the house and, you know, talk to your child, get to know him or her. Mm-hmm. Um, another hint is dressing the person in bright colored shirts. Mm-hmm. And coats in the middle of winter, you don't put a, they got a really uh, loud, uh, brightly colored uh, Hawaiian shirt on, you don't put a dark colored <laughs> coat over them because it doesn't really help a lot. Because particularly in, in any environment, it's easier to find somebody if they got brightly colored clothes. Right. By the way, Project Lifesaver actually sells a line of clothing that has the individual's name and ID number on the shirt. So, particularly if the individual is nonverbal, you know, if they're out looking, you know, and they, this person's got that sh- shirt on, which you unfortunately have to buy, um, then they get a positive idea of, okay, this is the person we're looking for. Great resource, Scott. And, you know, I would also recommend that families can reach out to their local EFMP family support office or their police department, their military police, emergency personnel, even um local organizations to find out if there are other resources available locally. Yeah. And there's, there's other, you know, there's a couple of other additional hints. Again, I talked about drowning. So obviously mm-hmm. there's a need for adaptive swim lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important to, you know, particularly if you've got water anywhere around you and many, many places we do either a pond or a stream or a lake, mm-hmm. uh, getting the child to hopefully teach them how to swim or at least float. Um, a lot of localities uh, have adapted swim programs that are run by the, the County Therapeutic Recreation Department. So that's something, if it's available, to, to try to use. Or if you have to, get someone privately to be able to teach her, hopefully, your child how to swim or float. Mm-hmm. Check the local um, state sex offender registry that is usually run by the state police in each state. Just see if there's anybody by you that you just need to know about. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier, 
and then giving a copy of the 911 flag sheet to your the local school resource officer, if there is one. Typically, they're in middle and high schools, not usually in elementary schools. Mm-hmm. And at least have them meet your child, if not have them come to an IEP meeting, because they need to know your child, so they recognize them. Uh, another thing to give them is if the child has a behavior intervention plan, I give them a copy of that because it gives them an idea of what to do and more importantly, what not to do. Because the last thing you want to do if someone's having a meltdown is aggravate the situation with some sort of sensory issue that, you know, makes it even worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, dealing, you know, how, how to deal with the challenging behaviors. Sometimes there's local resources where we live. They have an actually a, a medical department that's connected to the law enforcement. And if you have a challenge behavior, you can call. Um, they have a team on standby 24 hours a day where you can take them and, and, they, and they take them there. And there's folks on hand. It isn't a law enforcement situation. It's more of a medical situation, a, a mental health situation. Okay. Um and so there's there's resources out there and available, but again, you you have to do the due diligence to uh, see what's available in your locality. Absolutely, absolutely, it can definitely vary based on area. And like I mentioned, checking in with your family support office, they may be able to point you in the direction of what some of those local resources are. Um, Scott, thank you for sharing this abundance of resources when it comes to safety. Um, I think you know we've talked about preparing in your home and in your community to keep your family, including your family member with special needs safe. I just wanna transition a little bit and talk about emergency preparedness because planning and preparing are so important in any type of emergency and knowing how to plan for your family member with special needs will help keep them as safe as possible. So Scott, can you share your thoughts on how a family might put together specifically a, a family emergency plan or why? Sure. There's lots of stuff to consider about that. Um, one of those is what type of emergency you're talking about. It, it depends on the scale of the emergency, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of the big scale or regional scale of, you know, if you have to leave your home, think uh, hurricanes, Katrina or something really huge mm-hmm. or fires that are happening in California now, mm-hmm. you know, you have to leave and you may never come back ever. And if you do, there will be nothing there to become act two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've got 10, 15 minutes to leave, what do you take? It's something you have to think about ahead of time because in the moment, you may not take everything you really need. You know, mm-hmm. the, this, the self-stimulatory toys or, or favorite thing that your child wants and will help calm them down. You know, medical records, educational mm-hmm. records. You know, the things that are, are, you know, besides your loved ones, which are, are going to be almost impossible to replace because mm-hmm. you may never be able to get back to replace them. Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing. And then there's also kind of the, that's the big scale. And then the smaller scale, you know, local, you know, if there's a fire, you know, you know, whose job is to get the person with autism out of or any other disability out of the house? Well, everybody. Because again, folks with autism tend not to leave a burning building. So, you know, you need to develop the plan, know where the the exits are, how far it is from their bedroom to all of those exits, and practice that plan. Uh, You know, they do it in school. We do it in 
you know, we do it at the office, you know, at least yep. a couple of times a year. Uh, <laughs> so, so practice that at the at home. I mean, where where does everybody meet? You know, hopefully it's someplace that'll be dry, depending on the weather. So you get there, and if it's a child with autism, they also tend to be a bolt risk, what they call a bolt risk. So once you get them there, you got to watch them because. Mm-hmm. You know, you, again, you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So once you get these individuals out of uh, whatever dangerous situation there may be, you got to keep them out and you got to watch them, you know, constantly to make sure they don't in some way put themselves back into danger. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I really believe in your recommendation to practice the plan, because like you said, we practice in school, we practice at work and and you mentioned, hey, I hope it's dry, but I don't know about you, but I've done some um practice fire drills on the installation at work uh, where it was raining, it was pouring. And so that might even be a good recommendation to try that with your family member. You know, what would happen if it was pouring and and you practice that fire escape? Uh, these are just some additional ideas. They're uh, recommended for, for all families, really. Um, but I think you may have hit some of them already, preparing for big and small emergencies and also considering, you know, who may or may not be home. Will the service member uh, be at work or deployed or um, at a training? Uh, create a network of support for backup in the event of a crisis or an emergency and have an emergency fund available to get money if needed. Involve all the family members in emergency preparedness discussions. You you don't need to scare your family members, but you can calmly have that conversation to inform and to prepare them. And post a list of emergency numbers, even include an emergency contact out of state in the event that a local emergency, for example, a, a natural disaster happens. And develop a family emergency communication plan. How will you be able to connect and talk to each other if separated? Uh, Scott, you had mentioned plan those escape routes from the home, um, set up a meeting spot and keep an eye on your family members, ensure they stay at the safe meeting spot. Keeping those important documents, including your insurance policy and a plastic bag and a a portable fireproof or waterproof box and some sort of method to be able to safely and quickly leave with those difficult to replace documents you mentioned. Uh, having a ready-to-go supply kit, I call it a go-bag, including things like that three-day supply of water, food, medication, battery, flashlight, uh, those, like you mentioned, Scott, those toys or those objects that your family member may be very attached to. And, you know, even the pets, if you can, create a pet plan. Um, what family member is in charge of, of getting the pets if time allows? Does the pet have a go bag or spotting your go bag that has the food and the bowls and the leashes and things like that. And FEMA. FEMA has the ready.gov website, which provides a make a plan resources section with special considerations for individuals with disabilities. You can also find info on Military OneSource and links to any of those specific resources will be posted with this podcast episode. There's also the Red Cross, um, various communication apps, installation and community alerts. I get those um, buzzing on my phone if anything ever happens. And your installation will also have an emergency family assistance plan and a family assistance center to assist during any 
emergency or disaster. And these centers, they can share how to get medical services, counseling, temporary lodging or transportation. So check in with um, your installation to know where that family assistance center will be in the event of a disaster. So Scott, that's a my quick overview of some additional um, tips and resources in the event of an emergency. Can you think of anything else that I may have missed? Well, one of the things on shelter locations, um, mm-hmm. particularly if a child with autism or who has any sort of sensory issues, typically they're not going to be able to stay at a large shelter. Mm. And so you need to tell the folks in charge of the shelter operation up front. And I, I've done some work with the Red Cross on this, mm-hmm. uh, that, hey, I've got a, a child with autism or somebody else that has sensory issues. So typically they will find a hotel. Mm-hmm. So you'll have your own room. You won't be put in the big, massive shelters. Mm-hmm. Um, just so, again, just, but it's something you need to tell them up front. Again, it all goes back to disclosure mm-hmm. uh, about uh, what, you know, what's going on with your family. Uh, and every time you PCS, of course, you have to update the local exceptional family member program uh, system and keep them informed of any changes there may be. You know, each time there's a deployment of PCS or anytime there's medical changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think military families, including military families with special needs, may face some additional challenges, uh, such as what you just mentioned with deployments, PCS, medical changes. And so, you know, maybe the service member is even a geo bachelor on an unaccompanied tour and the family's living somewhere else. So there's there's a lot of different scenarios that families may find themselves in. But what I'm really hearing, uh, Scott, is that preparation is key and communication is key, really expressing what your family and your family members needs are to get that assistance. So Scott, we've talked about some terrific ways to keep your family safe every day in your community and also during emergencies. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share on safety? Well, I mean, safety concerns are are a challenge, uh, particularly for families with special needs. Mm -hmm. And you need to proactively uh, think about it, prepare for it, because, again, it's not a matter of if something's going to happen. It's when, uh, particularly in the world of autism. So there's things you can do and you have to do up front to increase the chances of those challenges resulting in better, safer outcomes for for you, for your loved one, for everybody, and including your local first responders. Mm, that makes sense. Scott, thank you again for all the wonderful information. This has been a really great discussion. And I want to thank our listeners. Please pass this information on to others who may benefit be sure to check out EFMP and me. We do have a specific checklist called Preparing for an Emergency. And there's more information there, as well as you can review the list of resources that we post along with this episode. So keep in touch with your EFMP family support providers at your installation for any assistance when it comes to safety and emergency planning or any questions you may have about the Exceptional Family Member Program. Scott, thank you again for joining us. Well, thanks very much, and uh, stay safe out there. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast for families enrolled in EFMP, brought to you by the Office of Special Needs and Military OneSource. Come back to catch our episode on preparing for deployment. I'm Jen Wong, and thanks for listening. 